As a business owner of an aquaculture company, how can you take the first step to be profitable and sustainable at the same time? That's what we're going to be talking about in these episodes. Hello, and welcome to the Business of Aquaculture podcast. This is the podcast for the sustainable business movement in the aqua farming and ocean ranching industries. This podcast aims to amplify the voices of entrepreneurs addressing the United Nations Global Goals, aka Sustainable Development Goals, number 14, to conserve and sustainably use the oceans and the seas. Listen in to fellow business aquaculturists in their journey in this new model of food production of making their business sustainable and help the ocean's ecology while also making a profit all at the same time. Get inspired to learn how even small to medium businesses can make an impact to save the seas, leave a legacy, and have a better quality of life. One of our goals is you take away a nugget of wisdom that will help your business move from the industrial revolution to business 5.0. Our vision is that of collaboration in the aquaculture industry. I'm Lourdes Gant, your host. Welcome to Season 5 of the Business of Aquaculture podcast. This episode, we have Jim Gibbons and Tony Chen. They are experts in the industry who I greatly admire. This episode is for you if you want to gain insights on the topic of generational achievements in terms of business from someone who has been in the industry since the 80s and someone who has started in the last decade. So listen in and I hope you enjoy this episode. If you listen to Season 5, Episode 2, Carl Engel, Chris Pierce, and Myron Roth were our panelists, where they talked about sustainable partnerships among the industry, scientists, and regulators in the aquaculture industry. For a one-on-one interview of our panelists today, please refer to Season 1, Episode 4 for Jim Gibbons, and Season 2, Episode 12 for Tony Chen. Welcome to the show, Jim and Tony. Thanks for having us. Well, I'm really delighted because I have, I think, three generations from our podcast today. So I don't know how young Tony is and I'm in the middle and then Jim obviously is the wiser guy, but both of you, (laughs) I really admire. So thank you again for your time today. I'll go with older. I don't know about wiser. (laughs) (laughs) So my first question to you both and anybody can start right away is I'd like to ask you both and maybe Jim, you can start. What's one strategy you can share with business who are coming in fresh in the industry? Ask as many questions as you can and don't assume that somebody won't answer the question. Just be a sponge in terms of asking questions. Generally speaking, I won't name any names, but there's people that won't tell you much, you know, right right up front. But if you ask them, they'll tell you. So you got to be assertive in asking questions. That'd be my one, one major lesson. Thank you. I always say there's no stupid question, right? Right. But maybe some people will agree. (laughs) What's your take on this, Tony? It's interesting. I think my one thing that I've learned, it would be very similar as a matter of fact. I mean, I don't have quite as many decades as Jim, but I think the one piece of advice I think is being hungry and going and asking questions. I mean, early days for us, we drove up and down the coastline trying to find farmers. We did the same thing when we went to Norway, drove the coastline, you know, finding farmers. I think there's so much knowledge in the industry, you have to go and seek it out. So for new businesses like ourselves that, you know, haven't been in quite as long, finding those people and continuing to kind of be curious and just ask has been a very, very important thing. 
Wonderful. So we're all in alignment with this in terms of just learning a lot. Love of learning is one of my values. So I've always asked questions and being new in the industry myself 14 years ago, it just never stops even to this day. So my second question is, if there's one thing that you wish you've done when you first started, what would that be? Looking back, I think a lot of people get into the industry for different reasons. You know, aquaculture has obviously grown over the last couple decades quite significantly. And especially in these last kind of five to 10 years since I've been in, I think the industry has changed a lot. I think the one thing I would tell myself going back is kind of continuing to really define that first vision and and continuing to chase it. I think in the beginning, I think one example I had was just, we had to defend ourselves quite a bit against aquaculture in general. People didn't know what it was. People thought it was, you know, factory farming. And we spent a lot of time kind of trying to defend the narratives and try to say the right things. But I think over these last few years, what we've discovered is, you know, staying true to what got us into the industry, what was exciting about it. And, you know, just staying very strong and and following that as a company kind of compass, essentially, and keeping true to those values. Because I think this industry, there's so much going on. You get involved in the politics, you get involved in environmental sustainability, you get involved in the farming and business. There's so many different angles to look at it and just staying true to what you're curious on and, and what you set the mission out for, I think, would be the piece of advice I give myself. Help me refine something I was toying with in my mind in terms of the one thing I might have changed. So my main interest in getting involved in aquaculture was to farm goida clams. And I wish I'd stayed more true to that vision early on. Although, and I made some mistakes, you know, for instance, we got into manila clams and oysters, but that was mostly to raise funds, you know, because the story we said then was they were the tried and true and not as risky. We're going to start with those things. And that helped us raise money. We had ended up raising $4.6 million from investors. But I wish we just had stuck with Gooey Duck and not done that. We wouldn't have wasted money there. And eventually, the same gentleman that helped me raise money and define my our mission statement also encouraged me to go out to the Philippines of all places where we were pursuing elver eels and lobsters and it was just we were a startup it was just way too ambitious we lost some money there so we could have saved a lot of money by not pursuing some of the things outside the vision but i was brand new to the industry so i could be led around by my nose can i ask you why you would have stayed with gooey duck looking back just from a profitability standpoint or the market's changed it's been by far our, our most successful endeavor we lost money in the Philippines. We've done oysters twice now, both times we haven't made money yet. Some of our advantages that we have now, we're actually a small company compared to, there. there's just one big fish in shellfish aquaculture. Absolutely, Taylor. Taylor, and they have a lot of tidelands and to come up with new tidelands was almost impossible except in gooey duck. So manila clams and oysters were traditionally grown in different areas of the beach and the bays than I can not say traditionally, they just are because there was no gooey duck industry. So the gooey duck industry was more open water. So that allowed us a brief window to get some leases that were valuable. There's not a lot of gooey duck uh, ground available. So I just wish I had concentrated more on that. 
I'm just kind of curious. I mean, this is where when you mentioned kind of investors drew you to other markets, is that something that you think could have changed historically? Because I mean, obviously you're telling me that that Gooey Duck's been the most successful kind of operations. And it sounds like you were pulled to move into these other markets because they seemed lower risk. They seemed profitable businesses at the time. I'm assuming this happened over the course of a couple of decades, but I'm really no, no, um, It happened over the first probably from year zero to year seven. You know, we okay. the, so Gooey Duck takes can take anywhere from six to ten years to grow, depending on the growing area and how you're doing it. We are fortunate here in South Puget Sound, where there's I could go on and on, but there's a lot of reasons why Gouda grows faster down here and there's less predation down here. So our success was higher. So by year five, it takes five years to grow. So we're still we had to raise money through five years. It wasn't like we had one big slug of cash. So we had to tell a story. And the story was Oh, we also do manila clams and oysters. Oysters you can grow in a year. Manila clams you can grow in two years, which is all true. But you don't really generate, especially if you don't know what you're doing, you know, which I didn't. You don't generate a lot of cash flow, you know. It was a story to tell so we could raise money. I think we could have raised money by sticking to the main story, which we got this wonderful opportunity with good at clams, and this is why we're doing it. I think we would have been just as successful raising cash, and we wouldn't have had our attention misplaced in these other areas. That makes sense. Absolutely. Sounds great. Well, that was a great question, Tony. It was interesting now that you're saying that, Jim, because I think that's still kind of the same. You use the word narrative, Tony, in terms of when aquaculturists talk about having a polyculture, different species because of different focus of the species. But it's good to hear from having to balance out being a jack of all trades or mastering your trade, having to be laser focused on vision, mission and values. That's for sure is a great conversation in terms of what will make a business thrive, you know? Yeah, that's a great way to put it too, Lord. As I like the way you put that with thank you one species and several species. Yeah. So, Jim, let me ask you a question. Maybe I'll reverse. What's one question you'd like to ask Tony? I guess I'd, I'd love, like a better understanding. You you do data analytics with disease. Is that what it is? Yeah, I can give. I guess the quick pitch is is trying to forecast whenever health issues may happen at a farm, and we do it by combining public and private data. So, things like environmental data that we can source from satellite imagery or from governmental sensors, combine that with the data that's collected at a farm. And in our case, working with salmon farmers, we see inventory, feed numbers, lab results, disease kind of testing, and we combine those to try to forecast when an issue will happen so farmers can act sooner. Well, I guess my one question would be, they don't really experience predation, do they, in the salmon farms? Not necessarily. It's a little bit different. I mean, you have seals in certain geographies that are are an actual issue. Birds can be an issue. And then those are kind of the main predation pieces. But since these are kind of open net pen caged farms, there's a lot less kind of natural predators in a sense. Is it harder to get a handle on, in your opinion, data analytics with disease control versus predation? So predation honestly doesn't happen that much anymore in salmon as far as kind of the big numbers. It's you won't see kind of losing a huge percentage of a farm due to predation. Disease and health issues are are definitely the bigger concerns, whether it's parasites or bacterial infections that that happen at, at the farms. Here's a good question. So what so you probably know and it's not really divulging anything into your business. 
what are the net margins you see in the salmon aquaculture industry? What do they what do they try to achieve? Extremely high, to be honest. I mean, we are looking at 20 to 30% margins. And if anything, this last year, you know, salmon prices almost doubled as far as per kilo export rates. So highest they've ever seen. But this last quarter, the farms made more money than they've ever seen historically. The challenges have been, you know, this has also been some of the most challenging years from a health perspective. Regulations come down really hard on, on what farms can and can't do. But the demand for salmon is high kind of globally. And as a result, prices have gone sky. I mean, the farmers are making a lot of money. It's a very high margin business. So they're shooting for net. That, that's the bottom line, net margin. 20 Absolutely. 20. Yeah. I mean, these are very, the farms and companies are extremely wealthy. I mean, you can look at their stock prices. They've continued to climb. I mean, the difference in what we've seen in US aquaculture versus what you see in kind of global salmon is worlds apart as far as how this industry profiles look. In terms of fish farming. In terms of fish farming, correct. Yeah. So, so the, if I'm if I'm hearing you correctly, the net margins for fish farming in the United States are much lower than you would see worldwide. Absolutely. I mean, it depends on on the species, right? It's, uh, when you look at tilapia or catfish, the margins are much smaller. Salmon's probably one of the highest margin businesses and they have achieved a scale that, I mean, there's specialty species that I could expect, you know, you see similar margins, whether it's specific grouper or, or rare kind of species in Southeast Asia, but across the board, I mean, salmon farmers make quite a good margin at a very large scale. I hate to do a generalization, but what would you attribute the less net margins you see in the U.S. versus the world? What? Why is that? It's honestly, I think the demand for the species as well as what we're able to grow, right? So in the US, salmon farming is not very prevalent. You see a little bit in Maine and a little bit on the West Coast up in Seattle, but it's still very small, right? US aquaculture is dominated by catfish, tilapia, bass, and then shellfish. And shellfish, you know, is supposed to have a pretty good margin business, but no shellfish farmers at the scale of a salmon company. I mean, these salmon companies, they're publicly traded on stock exchanges, extremely large corporations. So a couple of questions there. One would be, would you expect the net margins in the salmon industry in the United States and Maine and around the Seattle area to be similar to the margins you see in the global salmon industry? They're close. The challenges are kind of the profiles of the water and the environment the animals are grown in are very different. So Norway, Chile, Canada, they all have very cold waters, whereas the US, we don't do any salmon farming in Alaska. So our waters and bays are typically more shallow and the temperatures are definitely a lot warmer. So as a result, the fish have more health challenges. Margins are a tad bit lower. But in the US, I mean, there has been huge operations looking at at land-based salmon. So whether you're talking about Miami, I think there's a couple in Maryland, I mean, spread out throughout the states, you know, land-based salmon and farming is supposed to be kind of the US's ticket towards this high margin business. I mean, the way I've seen it, regulatory issues kind of in North America around aquaculture are really what's hampering the industry from being able to scale to what you see in some of these other countries. You think land-based aquaculture for salmon will ever able to rival Nippon aquaculture and the way I see it, it depends on salmon prices. So it really depends on the demand. So land-based aquaculture the costs are much higher, right? So the need to change water temperature, the facilities the animals 
are going to be grown in, there's increasing costs. Now, if the prices maintain where they are, stay above, I think the number is about eight USD per kilo. As long as the sale prices stay above that, you can continue to maintain a profit in these land-based facilities. It's going to be less than what you see in the ocean-based facilities because their costs are just much lower. There's definitely opportunity, but prices are going to need to stay high. And salmon and historically has had seen some crashes from a price standpoint. So you answered my question there about even if they're profitable in the United States, the net margins will be lower. But I want to go yep. back to one other thing you said regarding shellfish aquaculture, where you, the word you used was supposed to have <laughs> higher net margins, which implied that so you don't have as much experience knowing what the net margins are in the shellfish industry. Always. Not directly. I mean, I'm aware kind of the half shell market has done very well historically. And over the last 10 years, you know, a lot of specific half shell focused farms have done pretty well from a from a margin standpoint. But how quickly that market's been growing, I don't know if it's been scaling the same over the last five years. It's obviously not at the same kind of market size as salmon. Well, I guess I asked my one question there. <laughs> good one questions i really love this conversation and that's why i decided to have this panel is because i learned a lot i took a lot of notes so my biggest takeaway from our conversation today love talking about numbers so when you guys are battering back and forth about profit margins and obviously the market size and even the geographic locations we're in it's the same species but different ways of doing business i guess based on where where they're being grown was amazing. Well, thank you both again for your time. How can our audience get in touch with you? They can always call me on my phone, which is cell phone is 360-701-0844 or the office phone here is 360-236-0462. So that's a cell phone 360-701-0844 or this office phone is 360-236-0462. That's the best way to get hold of me. Or they can email me at jlgibbons at seattleshellfish.com. And for me, you can find all our contact information at manalandaqua.com. Our email and phone numbers are on the website. Well, thank you again both for your time. To our listeners, thank you for your time today. And please subscribe on the podcast and know that when you listen in, you build a home from the Philippines via b1g1.com. Thanks, everyone. And I'll see you next week. Thanks, you both. Thank you for listening, and I hope you are inspired from this episode. Do take a moment and share this with your friends and colleagues, and rate and review the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. I'd love to know what your biggest takeaway from this conversation has been. What are you going to do differently? Please share your thoughts across social media and tag us. For links and show notes for this episode, visit our website, www.sustainableaquaculture.ca slash podcast. Thank you again. I hope you will join me on the next episode and together we can help create a better business in aquaculture.